Before we begin today's show, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about a new layer to the podcast. I'm now officially on Patreon. Have you ever thought to yourself after listening to an episode of this show, why didn't Derek think to ask that question? I know I certainly have. Then sign up at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast and you'll get the chance to ask the guest of this show a question. You'll also get early access to episodes and a chance to vote on show topics. And I'd also like to give a special shout out to our patrons, Steve Wise, Josh Shinnewerk, Tim Spivey, and Tanya Richter. Thank you guys so much for your contributions. And again, if you'd like to be a part of our growing community, just head over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and today we're doing a special roundtable episode as voted on by members of my Patreon, and I've been really excited to do this ever since this won the September poll. Um, I also have not one, but two returning guests who I thought would be perfect for this discussion. First up, we have the writer, director, and producer of the film Survey, Mr. Steve Wise. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me back, Eric. I, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I really enjoyed our screenwriting discussion that we had. But it's, It seems like it was only yesterday, but was it like a month, two months ago? I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> time is very fluid, uh, which is uh, probably appropriate for the conversation for today. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, the, the pandemic has kind of caused everything to just kind of mesh together. <laughs> so. The only way I can tell what day it is anymore is whatever <laughs> I have planned for that day. So I'm like, oh, I have to do this. So it must be Friday or something like that. But also another returning guest actually uh, had her on the show just two weeks ago. But the writer, director, producer and star of the web series, a piss off. I love you, Miss Jesse McCormack. Jesse, welcome back. Hello, thanks for having me back, Derek. And it's oh, funny. you almost caused me to do a spit take. <laughs> hey, I was just drinking when you said that. I was like, oh, I almost went over my computer. So. <laughs> just natural comedy going on here on the show, and it's it's appropriate that Jesse, you're back on the show because it, it kind of sparked. You know, in addition to the the poll on Patreon. Our conversation from your interview when you were on my show a couple of weeks ago, we talked for what must have been 10 to 15 minutes about our mutual love of movies from the 80s. And we had mentioned that movies from that era, and I specifically mean like the early to you know, like 82 to 87 or 88, the movies from that era have a very unique charm and a very unique feel, in my opinion. And the movie that we're talking about today, and it's actually the 35th anniversary of this movie, is Back to the Future. One of my personal favorite movies of all time. I absolutely loved it growing up as a kid, and I appreciate it much more now as an adult. 
and the reasons you know we'll get to here in a second. But I wanted to start off, and we'll start with you, Jesse. What is your initial memory of seeing Back to the Future, or just your initial memory of the film in general? Wow, I just remember being a kid, seeing it for the first time in the movie theater, and I had such a crush on Michael J. Fox. So that was my first first thing that comes to me because I was I already had such a crush on him from Family Ties. So, and I just remember certain moments throughout the film, like when he was back in the fifties and he used the skateboard to escape Biff and the guys. And I just remember little jokes, like when he meets his uncle Joey as a baby and the baby's in the crib and Marty's like, you better get used to those bars, Joey, because Joey's in jail in the eighties. It's just those clever little details that I, I remember, but the whole thing, I just loved it. I thought it was magical. What about you, Steve? Okay, I've got a story. <laughs> um, okay, I, I was in high, actually, I had just graduated high school. I was 17 years old. Uh, I was up visiting my dad in Michigan. And the Detroit newspaper came in. And I remember opening it up to the entertainment section because I was always, you know, reading up on whatever movies were coming out. And they had a full page ad for Back to the Future. It was the movie poster in newsprint. And I, I looked at that and I was like, what is this? What does that mean? Back to the future. And I was just so intrigued trying to figure out what the, the picture meant, you know, with, okay, here's, is that a spaceship? Is that, what is that that, you know, with the, the door opened up and the flames coming up behind it. And I was just so intrigued by it. Well, then right shortly after that, um, Siskel and Ebert, had on their episode they were reviewing back to the future and they raved over it and of course they you know showed clips from the movie and i just absolutely had to see it well my dad was going to take my brother and sister and myself to the movies so i insisted you need to see back to the future <laughs> and i told him what it was about and you know he grew up in the 50s so it was like oh okay you know sounds fun and <laughs> so we were sitting in the movie theater and, you know, act one, before Marty goes back in time, if you don't know what the movie is, it, it's kind of bizarre, you know? And, and I remember sitting in the movie theater thinking, okay, Siskel and Ebert both love this movie. Why? You know, it's like, okay, here's this teenager who is having all this bad luck and his parents, his whole family are just losers. And it's just like, where is this movie going? <laughs> and my dad leaned over to me and said, what are we watching? <laughs> and I, was, I, I don't know. It's supposed to be good. And well, of course, then by the time that Doc Brown shows up and the time machine and he goes back in time, the movie got great and it was just, you know, became one of my favorite films, but just that first 15, 20 minutes of it in the first time watching it in the theater, I was not sure what was, where this movie was going or if this was going to be any good or not. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, so I was born a year after the movie came out. So I unfortunately missed, right. <laughs> That that's tradition is anytime I mention my age, Steve has to 
has to take a joke at me. But um, I remember watching it, and for those of the younger listeners, you may not remember the days of VHS, but I remember watching it on VHS, and I remember the cover, you know, that that Drew Struzan poster was what drew me in, seeing, you know, like you mentioned, Steve, like, what is that a car? Is that a spaceship? What What is this? And it, you know, I was related to it because, you know, I was, um, you know, younger age at that time. I thought I thought it was really cool in the sense that it had the aspect of time travel and him going back to meet his parents. And I love the Doc Brown character just because he was so goofy and over the top. You know, as a kid, I was drawn to that type of stuff. But as I watched it when I got older, because I went a long period of time uh, from not seeing really any of the movies. I think I watched the original back in late 2015, early 2016. And it was the first time I had seen it in a long time. And I have so much more appreciation for it now because of almost the simplistic yet complex story that it tells. Because all of us, we wonder, you know, what our parents were like when they were our age, whether we're teenagers, young adults, whatever the case may be. So having to go through, you know, almost like the eyes of Marty McFly when he goes back in time and he sabotages his parents from meeting each other. And then it becomes, he has to save his own existence instead of just trying to figure out a way to get back home. But that initial, that initial aspect of what were your parents like whenever they were my age, I think is so simple and it's so relatable because we all think about it. And that to me is one of the ultimate reasons why I would consider Back to the Future, honestly, a perfect movie. I don't it know is. if you guys agree with me on that. It, it is. And it, it, I think it's also such an unusual film because it combines so many different genres. You know, it's, it's science fiction and it's comedy and there's a romance element. I mean, there's a weird, creepy, like, incest element <laughs> uh, that we can get into that I didn't really think about so much when I was a kid. Um, but, uh, you know, it just, it encompasses so many different things. And it's, it, it's what you would call a four-quadrant film, which... Because, it, you know, if you're a kid or if you're an adult, like anyone can appreciate this movie. And I think that's that's really unusual for such a big commercial film to really appeal to everyone like that. Well, you know, you talk about it being a perfect movie and I it's near perfect. And there's a couple of flaws in it that I can point out. But but for all intents and purposes, yeah, I mean, the in getting back to kind of what I was saying about Act One being kind of disconcerting at, at first, but watching it back again, everything in the first, you know, 20 minutes lays out the story plot and lays out all the threads that are going to come back later on. And Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale did an excellent job with that script where, you know, they they had all these different elements. Like you said, it's very complex. It's It's overall a very simple film but just all the nuances in it, there's definitely setups and payoffs that are just are brilliant through the entire movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Some interesting research I was doing leading up to this conversation. So Bob Gale actually came up with the idea for the story 
uh, while he was visiting his parents, he found his dad's high school yearbook and then thought to himself, I wonder if I would have been best friends with my dad if we were the same age. And then from there, it the story just kind of naturally progressed. And it, it's one that, you know, I consider there's a very short list, I think, of movies that should never be remade. Like to me, the yeah. original Star Wars trilogy is up there. Yeah. The Back to the Future series is one as well, because, yeah, you can make other time travel stories that might have a similar aspect to it. But I don't think you could replicate what Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale and the rest of the cast and crew did with this. Well, I don't I, I actually think that Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis may have all the rights to the films. And as long as they're alive, they have said no, no one will be remaking this movie, which I think is great. No one should touch it. I could see at some point um, expanding the universe, you know, because they they set up possibly. In fact, the animated series did a wonderful job, kind of continuing the adventures of Doc Brown and his family. And Marty was kind of thrown in there too. Um, but I could see at some point, kind of like what they were doing with the new Ghostbusters movie, that you know they they find the train. You know, somewhat some teenagers come across it, and it's a relic. You know, just some derelict. Der, I'm sorry, derelict, not a derelict, uh, <laughs> sitting out in the woods somewhere. Um, and you know, maybe the uh, flux capacitor is missing, and uh, you know, they across it and start it up again. And you know, Doc Brown's kids, Jules and Vern, come out of the woodwork to say, "Whoa, whoa, you know, what are you doing here?" And you know, where they've settle down without time traveling and realize that they have to, you know, fix whatever happened because, you know, these wacky teenagers caused some trouble. I don't know, but I, I can see them doing some, something within that universe that's not using the same characters necessarily and not a remake. Well, not to change to a, a different movie, but I don't know if you guys remember the sequel to the Terminator they found, you know, a ship from the old Terminator, and that's how the 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 sequel was born because of this old technology they found. And you know, it, it sounds a little bit similar to what you just described, Steve. And I think that that's a great idea as long as they're not like. I just don't want to see Marty McFly and George McFly being, you know, played by different actors. Well, um, the all of the elements came together just perfectly, you know, and as, as we all know, um, when you make a movie, any one thing could go wrong that could cause the whole movie to fall apart. And I mean, it just, the having a movie come together perfectly is kind of a miracle. And when you have all the cast, just perfect, the direction, perfect, the screenplay, perfect, just, and, and the thing is that that was a, a product of the time. Uh, if we tried to do a remake right now, how, how would you do that? You know, so we're going back into the '90s at this point. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. It just it wouldn't work right because the technology is different, the society is different, and we just you know we we as people are, are different, and it just wouldn't wouldn't be the same. You'd have to create something different, something new and original that um, otherwise it just, it would just fall apart. 
Well, I think you bring up a great point. The comparison between the 50s and the 80s, there's mm-hmm. just enough of that gap to where it feels like a completely different universe. I think if you were to say go back in time from now to the 90s, yeah, kids of the 90s might get a kick out of it, but would the story and the experiences really yeah. mesh that well? And I, I don't think so. I think the the marriage between the 80s and the 50s in that movie was one of the multiple things that, that made it work. Well, when you think about it, I mean, if, it go, if you go back into the 80s, I think there's a, enough of a societal shift from there to now. But, I mean, we're already talking about that's, you know, 1990 is 30 years ago now. So um, th- that gulf becomes bigger and bigger. Um, but if you go back into the 90s, like, well, you know, the Internet was in its infancy, but it was still there. Cell phones were just starting to become, you know, I mean, you look at the X-Files and, you know, okay, they're carrying around flip phones. Um, you know, a lot of people carried beepers you know, for a period of time before segueing over to, to cell phones. But the technology that we take for granted now was just beginning. But you almost have to go pre that. Um, well, it might be you know, interesting. The year the, the movie was made, 85, to go back to the 80s from now. Yeah. You know, stuff has changed. It, it could be pretty nifty to look at that. Yeah, and I think if you were to do that, it should be like it's a completely separate thing. But I think if you were to do a time travel movie like that, you would get almost unfair comparisons to yeah. Back to the Future. And just uh, throw this out there real quick. I had an idea for a time travel movie where these characters kind of accidentally travel through time, but only 10 years. And so they don't notice immediately that they've actually gone through time because there's, you know, when you go... 10 years as this changes, but you know, you have to look for the changes and it's just like, yeah, it's just kind of off a little bit. And I think that would be kind of fun to, to explore that, you know, what if you just went back just a few years, <laughs> go back exactly 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. No, it's, and there are some other time travel stories that I do like, but when you really, boil down to it to me the ultimate time travel story is back to the future for you know the the multiple multiple reasons that we listed but i've often say this on the show but i I think the ultimate thing what drives a film to be as good as it is well two things the story is one and the characters are another and we mentioned it previously but i think the casting could not have been better with these characters i think michael j fox was perfect as Marty McFly, and I'm sure we'll get to the the Eric Stoltz stuff here in a bit, but you know Christopher Lloyd is like, like that to, is his that's his most iconic role in my opinion as Doc Brown. Like I couldn't see really anybody else playing that role. Maybe someone like a Jim Carrey if you were to do like a modern version of it, but to me you couldn't beat you couldn't beat Doc Brown or Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown. So I I think the casting is one of the ultimate reasons why this movie is as good as it is. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's perfect casting. Yeah, it is. And it's so strange to think that Michael J. Fox wasn't originally even playing Marty McFly. I mean, who else could it be but him, you know? Well, yeah. And 
of course, with Eric Stoltz, I mean, he's a great actor, but uh, having seen some of the clips from what they shot with him, uh, yeah, his comedic timing is just not there. And it just, it, yeah, the movie would not have worked. So if they just release clips or have they released like full scenes of him as Marty? Because they shot a good portion of the movie with him, didn't they? Oh, yeah. 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 They, they shot for like five weeks. Yeah. They, they, from what I understand, they wanted uh, Michael J. Fox initially, but he was tied up with family ties and they wouldn't release him from, you know, from his contract from that. And so they shot for five weeks and finally it just, Robert Zemeckis went to Spielberg and said, it, it's just, it's not working. And Spielberg said, well, you got to let him go. And uh, so they, they fired him and they went back to the producers of Family Ties and begged and pleaded. And they said, okay, he can work on the show during the daytime and then go do your movie at night. I cannot even imagine how <laughs> exhausting that must have been. My God. Well, you know, the saving grace is that with the sitcoms, like how um, that particular kind of sitcom that's done in front of a live audience, um, the rehearsals are during the week. You know, they, they start off with the, the table reads and then start blocking and do the rehearsals. And then they shoot the show on Friday. And they usually do like two different um, run-throughs with, with the audience or different audiences. Um, and so I could kind of see where he would, you know, be there for the rehearsal stage and then be able to take off and, and not have to put in, you know, two full eight hour, 12 hour days. Um, you know, the, a show like that, I, I could see where they could work. If it was a single camera show, um, there'd be no way. But it was still seven days a week and he was doing a lot of night shoots on Back to the Future. I mean, <laughs> I mean, hats off to him. Makes you wonder when he ever slept. Uh, yeah. Or if he slept. I know, <laughs> slept a lot. But I mean, I'd say it was absolutely worth it, though, because and you know, you mentioned it, Jesse. I can't picture anyone else in that role. I, I think of that with all the other cast members. I can't think of anyone but Tom Wilson as Biff. Yeah, and he's one of my favorite characters who spans all three movies because you get to see different iterations of him. You get to see. You know, his younger self, his older self, his extremely older self in 2015, then his ancestral yeah. version in, in the third. So I, I think he doesn't really get enough credit oh, because, absolutely. Of, <laughs> because of just the diversity. Like he's kind of playing the same character, but he's kind of not. And that's one of the other cool things about the trilogy is there are so many repeating beats that they have throughout the movie. Like, you know, Marty getting knocked out and someone who's either his mom or looks like his mom waking him up and he's just like, Oh, how, you know, I can't remember what all he says, but just little familiar things like that, that repeat themselves throughout the trilogy, but they don't get old to me. They don't seem like a running joke that they tried to force themselves with. I also want to give, um, Leah Thompson some credit. Cause I feel yeah. like people don't give <laughs> really enough credit. She's really funny in the movie and, and you really buy her in that era. You know, she, really seems like she's from the 1950s and she she plays both ages really well and I, I I always feel like people don't give her enough credit so I want to give a shout out to Leah Thompson right now I think that both she and uh, Tom Wilson 
are the backbones of the movie series, but in particular, in Back to the Future Part Two, they shine. And just the the different character uh, representations that Leah Thompson has to do for that character in the course of that movie, and and Tom Wilson also for playing you know really old and playing middle aged and you know and, and back and and then young again also. Um, and being very convincing in each each iteration, um, yeah, I, I, he he's the unsung hero of Back to the Future, and and yes, I agree with Leah Thompson also. Well, and he provides something a little bit different. And I'll say the same thing about Leah Thompson: is there's something that's just different enough about all the iterations where it's not like it's oh, it's just the same person. You know, there's little it's quirks a- that that are different with each variation. It's unfortunate, though, that part three, they didn't really have anything for her to do. I mean, they, they shoehorned her in, and it was like, oh, she's not even blood-related, but yet she looks exactly like the mother. And they kind of hand-waved that with, uh, eh, who are you? you know? <laughs> and you know, it was like implied that uh, the McFlies are attracted to the same kind of, kind of woman. Um, she had a nice you know, couple scenes in there, but she was really irrelevant to the Lot. And I mean, I'm glad that they gave her a role, but I really wish that they had been able to do something with her in that film. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I will say, I think my favorite version of Biff might be the dark reality from Back to the Future 2. Because I, I watched that movie not too long ago for the first time, honestly, since I was a kid. Because I remember watching the sequels and I wasn't as big a fan of them as I was the original. But I went back and watched them again because they were recently on Netflix. So I watched, you know, like Back to the Future 1, then the next night I watched Part 2, and then after that watched Part 3. 2 has some really fun moments. Like, it's the most complex story-wise because you have the, you know, going to the future, then you go back to 85, but things are wrong. Then you got to go back to 55. Avoid seeing, you know, yourselves from 1955. You're like the whole, you know, like avoiding like the earlier Marty McFly and the earlier dark uh, Doc Brown it added a really really cool element, and I just remember you thinking it was really cool whenever Marty goes back to '85 and things just are, are like old and broken down, and you see this giant hotel and casino with Biff's ugly mug on it. It was great. Not that that would be realistic in the real world after all. Oh no! I, yeah, I just had that myself. <laughs> I'm glad you guys said it and not me. <laughs> not to say I wasn't I was, thinking it when I watched the movie, but. I was going to say also that uh, in, when they go back to 1955, one of the things they have to avoid is stock footage of Crispin Glover. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you know it's, it's interesting. You, you talk about um, the cast from the first movie that you can't imagine anyone else playing those characters, but yet two of the actors were recast for part two. Claudia Wells was unavailable for the second movie and Elizabeth Shue stepped in the role, which I absolutely love Elizabeth Shue. So uh, I think um, the couple little moments with her were wonderful, especially when she sees herself. And that, that, that scene is just fantastic. I wish, I wish they'd given her more to do also. Yeah. They kind of, it pushed her by the wayside a little bit in part two. I mean, she just passed out and she laid on a, you know, a, a porch bench for 
basically two full movies. Because <laughs> she's still there in part three when Marty comes back to wake her up. Oh my god. <laughs> Literally just dumped her somewhere. <laughs> Terrible. And this old, like, abandoned neighborhood in desolate 1985. Oh, we're just going to leave you here, but when we fix things, you won't be affected. <laughs> and sure enough, in part three, like, oh, she's still there. <laughs> she's still there. But, um, no, that that is interesting. And, and, you know, I remember being a little surprised when they went back, because the part two begins with the end of part one. They reshot all that stuff, too, because Claudia Wells was in the final uh. scene, so they reshot it with Elizabeth Shue. So, you know, it was, and I, I like both of them in yeah. those roles. I, I, I prefer Claudia Wells like slightly more, but I thought Elizabeth Shue from what little she was in it did, did a fantastic job of stepping in. Well, Claudia Wells was perfect for what the character was in the first movie. And, you know, she was just, you know, the girlfriend that, I mean, <laughs> the character itself was not, there wasn't really much to her. I mean, but it was the girlfriend role, guys. She was the girlfriend role. Yeah. But she inhabited that character really well and you liked her. You know, you, you saw them together and believed it and were rooting for them. So she, she did, you know, exactly what was expected of that role. And not to mention, as far as actors go, Claudia Wells is arguably the nicest actor I've ever met in my entire life because she was at Jesse to fill you in. So we have this convention here in town called Pensacon and Steve's one of the admins for it. Claudia Wells was here at Pensacon back in 2016. And she was one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And the cool thing is whenever she would sign autographs, she would sign the, the blue sheet of paper, like she would give to Marty in the first movie. And she would write like a fake phone number and then her autograph. So it was awesome. Yeah. And she's going to be back. Uh, um, 2021 also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as part of a uh, Back to the Future reunion. That's great. Yeah, so that that that's that's really cool. I remember uh, being so jealous of her because she got to be Michael J. Fox's girlfriend in the movie. <laughs> that's my big memory. Yeah. No, that's that's understandable. But um, kind of going back to the original. Uh, movie what were some of your guys personal favorite moments we'll uh we'll start with you jesse um i think one of the, one of my favorite moments was actually at the beginning of the movie when um marty is at doc's house and he sets up the amp and he turns <laughs> up uh and he winds up blowing it out i just you know, I thought it was a great setup to let us know what kind of movie this is going to be. We're, we're going to be in for an adventure. But there were so many great uh, movies throughout. I mean, the, the scene where after Marty is hit with the car and he wakes up uh, in the house and he sees his mother in shadow and he thinks it's his mother from the 80s. And he's saying, oh, I had the most horrible dream. And then she starts calling him Calvin Klein because that's what's on his underwear. <laughs> so classic. But there are just moments throughout that I love so much. Steve? Um, well, <clears throat> to, to name a couple, uh, when he 
first travels back in time and crashes into the barn. And of course, over the one of the pine trees that uh, uh, becomes the Twin Pine Mall. So later on, it becomes the Lone Pine Mall because he destroyed one of the trees. Um, when the farmers come in and find you know, the, the DeLorean in there, and they think it's a spaceship, and the little kid has the comic book, and like he's, he's a Martian, or whatever he says. Yeah, and, and of course, he comes out wearing the, you know, the... Uh, the biohazard you know, suit. Biohazard suit, thank you. And, uh, you know, looks like a spaceman. And, you know, it's just, that's, that's great. Um, and of course, when he first arrives in town, and he walks, you know, through the archway, and sees the town for the first time in 1955 and i mean it's just it's just staged so wonderfully yeah and we get to see all the 1950s you know stuff the texco station and, and whatnot um it's just it's it's wonderful it's just it's a wonderful uh, moment in the film i think also another great moment steve like the farm moment you brought up was when marty tricks george into asking Lorraine to the dance by putting the Van Halen on on the headphones and again dressing up in the high in the biohazard suit and that was so clever. I mean there were so many clever moments like that. The whole the clock tower, the way we learn about how you know it was struck by lightning and then the way that comes back and that's how they are able to send the car back to the future. It, there's so many little moments like that that are just extraordinarily clever. Well, you know, I, I read an earlier draft of the script and it starts off in a science classroom and they're watching a like a 16 millimeter movie um, on nuclear explosions. And at the end of the story, they go to a nuclear testing site and it's a nuclear bomb that sends them back into the present. Wow. Yeah, and then they decided, that. yeah, then they decided that wasn't really a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really picture that. Yeah, and Doc Brown was like uh, uh, a ladies' man. He had like, you know, women on his arms and stuff. <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was, it was different. <laughs> It was good that they went through another you know, yeah, couple drafts of that. Like, that. like Annie Hall and Pretty Women Pretty Woman are totally different movies than what they ended up. It's interesting to hear about the early iterations of these films. Well, you know, one thing that um, even in that draft of the script, it, it really bothered me reading it because they had product placement written into the script. And it, it in fact, I almost put aside because just on the, the first page, it was you know, this company name in all caps, and then they pick up, you know, such and such. And, and it was like, they explicitly had in all caps, all the product placement that they had to, you know, had to show. And it was, it was really annoying. <laughs> you know, it's funny, because if you watch the film today, there are a lot of references that people young people wouldn't necessarily get today like right. tab soda and pepsi free soda which is a joke in the film right in the diner in the 50s when marty asked i'll take the a tab and the guy's like i haven't you haven't paid you haven't ordered anything yet and then you ask for a pepsi free those things don't even exist anymore yeah uh, which, which is funny because tab is a coca-cola product 
but it, it worked as a joke, so they just they put it in there. Yeah. Uh, what was it the joke like? Oh, if you want a Pepsi, you're gonna have to pay for it. Yeah. Or something exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I, you know another. Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say another thing about the product placement is um, at the end of the movie, you see the bum is laying on the um, bench, and there's an advertisement for California raisins on it. Um, initially, California raisins paid them a lot of money to have included in the movie, and they were gonna have a scene where one of the characters was eating raisins out of a bowl, and Robert Zemeckis said, uh, "No, it looks like they're eating bugs." You know. Yeah. It's just, it, it doesn't play well on screen. And so they put the ad, you know, the ad on the bench. Well, when the movie, the screen for the advertisers, if you will, California Raisins threw a fit because they didn't want it associated with a homeless person. So they had to give them the money back. They should have thrown some money to M&Ms. Mm. <laughs> well, that reminds me of, uh, I'm sure you guys probably know this, but with E.T., they initially wanted M&M's to be his favorite snack, but they didn't want their name associated with it, and that's why his favorite snack was Reese's Pieces. Why wouldn't M&M's want their name like with an alien? They were just like, we don't, we don't do well with aliens. Right. <laughs> it's like I was reading today, the, um, back in 2000, the CEO of Blockbuster turned down an offer to buy what was then Netflix. Wow. And look how that worked out. Yeah. So that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a conversation for a whole separate podcast. But uh, and I agree with you guys. The the little moments from the movie are are what make it. You know, one of my favorite and something we haven't touched on is Alan Silvestri's score, which is uh -huh. absolutely wonderful throughout all three movies. But and just I I love when little actions happen that match the beat of the score. So when Doc's finished setting up everything at the clock tower, waiting for Marty to show up to send him back to 85. And he looks at his watch and it goes, dun, dun, dun. where is that kid? And then he looks mm -hmm. at his other watch. Damn, where's that kid? The like, little, little moments like that just crack me up every time. And then of course, well, you, you know, know oh, go ahead. No, you finish. Oh no, I was just going to say like my, my other one of course is the, the Johnny be good guitar sequence. Like it's just so fun to watch and just watching Marty just, you know, just over the top animated strumming his guitar and everybody's just like, <laughs> they're like, maybe you're not ready for that yet, but your kids will love it. Yeah. So it's almost well, like he invented rock and roll. Yeah. And uh, so uh, a white man is uh, responsible for music created by a black man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, with Alan Silvestri's score, um, Robert Zemeckis approached him and, and specifically said, I want something big because this is such a small movie. I mean, if you look at it, it's just, it takes place in one little town and it's just about these characters. There's really only a couple of scenes that have any sort of special effects. Most of it is just lightning effects. And, but he wanted the film to feel epic. So he said, I want the score to be big and bombastic. And that's what Alan Silvestri wrote. And it works. I mean, you think of Back to the Future as being this big grand film because of the music. When you hear that, you know, that score, that's what you think of. It puts you in the mindset. Yeah, the, the score is really another character in the film. Mm -hmm. it's, it's beautifully done. 
Well, I know, Steve, you and I have had conversations about this, is that music can make or break a movie. And this absolutely makes the movie that much better. Like you said, just the the big feel of, you know, and you you just think of the build up to the the main theme song is epic all in itself. And you, you think of something big and momentous. But like you mentioned, Back to the Future is a pretty intimate story, but the score just takes it over the top and I, I love it throughout all three movies and there are a lot of movies that because there's a difference between a score and a soundtrack you hear the soundtrack the collection of actual songs that are used and then the score that Silvestri wrote a lot of movies have great scores but not a good soundtrack or vice versa but back to the future one had both because you think of the music that Huey Lewis did you know that to me is synonymous like his music to me not just power of love and back in time his entire discography, I think of Back to the Future when I listen to his music. And, and he's got a great cameo in the movie, too. I was going to say, he does that great cameo where he's like poo-pooing his own song. It's hilarious. I like to it's think that... It's too darn loud. <laughs> I like to think that the kid version of him was at the in the ballroom when Marty was playing Johnny Be Good. Oh yeah, I like that. I like that would have that would have been actually a funny little little tie-in. Mm-hmm. But no, it's every every aspect of it. Like you know, the Huey Lewis music, Earth Angel. Um, I think there was an Eric Clapton song that was on there too. Just because I still have the the CD. You know, for use for those of you who remember compact discs, I still <laughs> have my original Back to the Future soundtrack that I got when it first came out on CD. That's why, to me, this movie is near perfect, because it nails on almost every aspect. You have the characters and the actors that play them. You have the score, you have the directing, you had Spielberg producing it. You had a great score. To me, it just, it checks all the boxes of what makes a great movie to me. Well, and, you know, when you talk about the score and the soundtrack, uh, that's one thing that Robert Zemeckis is really good at, and he's proven time and time again. I mean, Contact and Forrest Gump and, and several others where he incorporates the perfect needle drop uh, for that moment, for that scene. And he just, he's really good. I, I don't know if he just has good um, music supervisors who go and find him songs and he's like, oh yeah, let's put that in there. But um, I think out of any director, he's, he's one of the best in selecting the right music for the right scenes. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And it's again when I was doing research on the movie, you know, studios didn't like the idea of Back to the Future, but it wasn't until <laughs> uh, Romancing the Stone, which Zemeckis directed, became a success, when studios were like, oh, "Let's take another look at that Back to the Future script." Well, so you it's, know, it's, it's just funny how it happens. Well, it's funny with with that because um, this is the third time or. Uh, fourth time, fourth time, that's that Zemeckis and Gale had teamed up with Spielberg. Um, they wrote 1941, which bombed, Spielberg directed. Uh, they wrote and Zemeckis directed both Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, which Spielberg produced for them, and both those movies bombed. And so Zemeckis said, I'm not, I'm not working with Spielberg anymore because I'm the bad luck charm. I can't do a film for Spielberg that is successful. And if Romance of the Stone had not 
been successful, which was for someone else. <laughs> Spielberg had nothing to do with that movie. Um, and it became a huge hit. Um, but if that had not been a success, Back to the Future would never have happened. That's crazy to think about. And again, it's it's like time itself. There's just that one little thing that happens or doesn't happen that sets you on a whole different direction. Like, I, I can't imagine what the world of film would be like if this movie did not exist. Well, but, you know, without it... I mentioned Forrest Gump, uh, and I know for some reason recently it's had a lot of haters, but it innovated filmmaking in a lot of ways, and you know that influenced other other films to come along. And so you know you kind of see this chain reaction that you know, Back to the Future influenced a lot of movies, and you know Robert Zemeckis would not have had a career <laughs> if not for it. When you think of that your generation of movies, you throw them back to the future and you go back a little bit earlier with Star Wars, that inspired a generation of filmmakers. Like There are current filmmakers now who grew up idolizing Star Wars, who grew up idolizing you know, Back to the Future, Terminator, other franchises from that era. And you can absolutely see the influence on it because it, it, to me it just speaks volumes to the films from that era and the influence that they continue to have. And of course, Spielberg. I mean, we, we talked about this uh, on our other podcast, Derek. I mean, you know, when I watched E.T., uh, that changed my life. And I, and I always say that I feel like no person has influenced more people to go into a certain profession than Steven Spielberg. You know, like, I want to see the data on that. <laughs> Like he is responsible for so many people becoming filmmakers. <laughs> um, but the eighties was great for that. I mean, I think it was a great time to be a kid uh, going to the movies. Yeah. I regret not being able to, to, to live that, but so, I mean, I still like in a way kind of live vicariously through it. Cause you know, my, my parents, love those types of movies so I saw them from a very early age so it's like in a way I feel like I grew up because in a way I did I just didn't see them like as they were coming out but they were huge influences on me so I I respect you know the films and those who made it happen you know from that era because they always hold and this one in particular a very special <clears throat> place to me but um, as we start to wrap up here, what do you guys think is, and we've kind of alluded to this, but what do you guys think is the legacy of Back to the Future? Steve, you go first. <laughs> I was going to say, Jesse, you go first. Um, legacy of Back to the Future. Um, well, I think first and foremost, you can't make a time travel movie without acknowledging Back to the Future in some respect, either overtly in the story or working around it because we've already seen this and, you know, seen how the timelines work. And, you know, so it's like doing the anti Back to the Future. Um, and and not, not just because of the, the first movie, but the whole franchise, you know, the whole series. Um, it's really difficult to 
do something fresh and original, and um, otherwise it's it's going to be compared back. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, I don't know about in terms of legacy, but I just think it will always be a great example of a film that everyone in your family can enjoy whatever age you are. And I, and I think that's pretty unusual today. You don't see that so much these days, but there's an innocence to that film. Uh, and a lot of those films in the eighties that, kind of makes them timeless and uh but but still in, in intelligent and not you know catering to the lowest common denominator it's just a really smart fun entertaining proud pleasing movie which is great uh and we just don't see that so much anymore so yeah, it I, still has manure jokes in it <laughs> this is true i but, hate manure it's half, it's, you know, Biff gets the manure. Hey, <laughs> he's deserving of the manure. It runs in the family. Right. Yeah, it's ironic that you're using the word timeless to describe a movie about time travel. I, I but I, I think it's, per, it's a perfect comparison. It is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But no, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is a timeless movie. Yeah, it takes place in the 80s, but to me, people of any generation can relate to it because it has that simplistic story like I mentioned earlier about, you know, we all as kids wonder what our parents were like when they were our age. Did they go through the same struggles that we did? Did they go through, you know, some of the same things that we did? How did they handle these things that we both might have gone through? It acknowledges all of that. So it's very relatable in a yeah, way. And it, and it humanizes parents. You know what I mean? Like we, we often think of our parents as they're just our parents. We don't actually see them as human beings who have their own foibles and struggles. And I think it, it, it really does a great job of like showing people like your parents, you know, existed before you were born. They had a whole life before you and they're, they're a person just like you are. Absolutely. My question, though, is why did it take George 30 years to write that book? <laughs> was well, it know, called what, like a match made in space? Yeah. <laughs> what was he doing before that? For the, the whole thing was given to him by Marty in 1955. Yeah. So it took him until 1985 to write it and get it published. Yeah. It's too busy bullying Biff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That we alluded to it earlier, but one of my favorite quotes, and yes, yeah, just because I'm a huge nerd, but whenever he blasts the Van Halen music and he's like, My name is Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. <laughs> I'm like, Wait, which? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, not to use the term from another movie, but you don't cross the streams. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny about that music, um, they couldn't get the rights to an actual Van Halen song. So Eddie Van Halen recorded that. And if you see, notice on the on the tape, I think it says Eddie Van or E Van Halen or something like that, where it's it's not the group Van Halen, but the person Van Halen. Oh, so I it's did not know his that. music, but not the group Van Halen's music. So it's credited as E Van Halen, not the yeah. Van Halen. But no, I this is to me. I know I've said it 
ad nauseum, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's absolutely on my top ten list. It's yeah. very it's very close to a perfect movie. I know a perfect movie doesn't exist, but there's a small tier of those to me that are very close to it. And the original specifically, and I, I love, I won't say love, but I like the sequels. But as far as the original movie goes, to me it's in a tier all on its own. As far as storytelling, cast, score, story, all of it. But uh, yeah, last thing I wanted to ask you guys uh, before we get out of here, do you guys have anything that uh, you'd like to plug uh, for the listeners? Jesse, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I have this web series that I shot called Piss Off I Love You. It's a culture clash comedy that we shot in London. And uh, we're figuring out where uh, the distribution will take place so people can follow us on Facebook, on the Piss Off I Love You Facebook page and our Piss Off I Love You Instagram page to uh, hear about any updates. And I'm, I'm writing a few other projects, but that's sort of what I'm up to at the moment. Steve? Um, well, uh, just kind of to brag a little bit. Um, my short film, Survey, um, is after three years still in the festival circuit and has just been picked up by a couple other festivals, including one in West Virginia and one in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Film Festival. And it just got nominated for, um, for another award. And uh, so... Yeah, it's um, oddly it's continuing to do well. Um, and then two screenplays of mine um, are doing well in, in the festival and contest circuit. Paradigm just won its third best screenplay award. And um, Maelstrom uh, just got uh, selected by four film festivals over the last few weeks. So um, yeah, I'm kind of proud of those. Um, but as far as um pitching anything um if you are interested in reading any of my material um batman dark knight which i co-wrote with lee shapiro is available on amazon um as is portals of the mind which is a collection of short stories that i wrote so um you can search for those on amazon fantastic and I believe it will still be going when this is released, but my film, The Parker Syndrome, is currently part of the Hollywood First Time Filmmaker Showcase. It's the first time the movie's actually available uh, to watch publicly. You can just uh, search for a Liftoff Global Network, and you'll be able to go to their site. So they're showing the films in three different blocks, and fans are actually able to vote on their favorite. Uh, the Parker Syndrome is playing in block two. So if you want to watch the Parker Syndrome, just be sure to select that option. I believe it will still be going on uh, by the time this is released. So if you're interested in seeing the Parker Syndrome, definitely go check that out. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to do this roundtable. This was a blast. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, you're welcome. Fantastic. And if you guys want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on all podcasting platforms. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can also follow me on Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And thank you, as always, to the Unicorn Wranglers for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. <laughs>